Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. The two of us want to take the lessons that we've learned over the past three decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors, and leverage our network of interesting friends, former students, business partners, and others we've met along the way in our life's journey to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Before we get to today's guest, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University and the Munster University of Applied Sciences. Today's guest is Tony Collins. He is the president of Clarkson University. We recorded this live at a once-a-month entrepreneurship event at the New York Biz Lab, so the sound quality reflects the venue. As in some of our past interviews at the New York Biz Lab, Rick DeRico is my co-interviewer. Oh, and Bela, tell them about the tale of two Tonys. Oh, yes. Thanks for reminding me, Mike. This is the second part of a double header. Back in episode 28, Rick and I interviewed Tony Civitella, who was Rick's boss. And in today's episode, Rick and I interviewed Tony Collins, president of Clarkson University, who is my boss. Two very different people with, as you'll find out, some very similar parts of their journeys. So, Mike. Why is the president of a 125-year-old university on a podcast that focuses on entrepreneurship? Good question, Bela. I mean, this is a rapidly changing environment. Uh, The whole birth of online educational technologies enables the big players to build scale pick quickly. Uh, The market, in some ways, is shrinking in the U.S. It's it's growing globally in other places. Um, But it should sound familiar to your business. Everything is changing rapidly. And we know that all organizations need to focus. They need to identify where the changes are coming from and then carve out a very clear space in terms of what they want to be. Uh, known for, and they've got to give students and the employers, all the kind of the different stakeholders and customers of an educational institution, a reason to come, a reason to sign up, a reason to pay tuition. Yep, Mike, well said. That's exactly why I thought, hey, besides Tony being my boss, uh, but having a person like that uh, on this podcast would be interesting for folks because there's lots of organizations out there that have been around for a long time. Their environment is changing rapidly. And, and leadership needs to figure out how they're going to change with that environment. With that, let's jump into today's interview with Tony Collins. This month, it's Tony Collins, my boss. Actually, my boss's boss's boss. <laughs> so the stakes are a little higher, maybe. Uh, so Tony Collins, president of Clarkson University. Come on up, So, um, Bela and I did rock, paper, scissors. I got to ask the first question. Since last month, I had to be the bad cop. So, this is my uh, big chance to get back at him. Um, so, first of all, why did you hire Bela? He's <laughs> no, good. He's good. <laughs> he's awesome. Um, no, thank you so much. Um, and I do want to thank you also, as Tony already just said, for sponsoring this event. It means a lot to the community, and uh, this continues to grow. 
Um, so my first question to you is just if you could give me a little bit of uh, background, of, you know, a little bit of people who maybe don't know you, who you are, a little bit about your background, uh, life in Australia, and some of the things that maybe shaped your philosophy. Sure, thanks. And thanks, by the way, for inviting me down here. And it's great to be in the Schenectady community. And uh, it's been over two years now since Clarkson's been uh, has merged, I guess, Union Graduate College into its activities. And we keep talking about it, and we will continue to talk about it, and we will actually do more and more about it, and that has become even more of a partner within the community. That's an important role for us. We feel it uh, very deeply. And, and so this is part of that activity. I can talk a little bit about that. Who am I? Uh, yes, I... I uh, was born and raised in, in Australia, uh, actually on my mother's side going back four generations. The female was one of the first 200 women transported to Australia. And in, in, in those terms, that means she was a convict. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so actually, obviously, you know, a long time Australian. Uh, and, and I think a couple of characteristics that we talked about this and, and it's funny, when you go through a conversation like this and you get asked personal questions, it makes you reflective a little. And for those that don't know, many people are a little bit surprised. Australia is the same land area as the US, uh, but about right now about 25 million people. So a tiny population, same land area. And because of that, you grow up kind of feeling that you have to punch above your weight. And I think it's that characteristic that eventually wound me up in the North Country at a university that kind of loves to punch above its weight and have a bigger influence than it probably should have. And so that's a bit of an Australian characteristic that I think is taking me in, into this position. Great. What about home life? Do you have brothers, sisters, mom, what was... I, um, actually, my father passed away when I was uh, 19, I think. Uh, I have a sister, uh, two nephews. They live in Australia, and that they actually... Uh, my sister's children, we have four children, they've had deep bonds over the years and that drew one of our children and lives in Sydney uh, now. So there's, there's a strong next generation connection. And one last question and then I'll turn it over to Bela as well. But I was thinking, we were talking about like your career path and you know the first Tony that spoke, also from Italy, so he's also an immigrant. Um, you know, he worked his way up. He was a, an intern and then he became the CEO of the company and you know you were an associate professor, correct? Assistant professor. Assistant professor. Yeah. Is that even lower than this? Yeah, absolutely. You can't get any lower. Right. <laughs> so you worked your way up, and can you give us a little sense of, of that experience? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, um, I I guess you work your way up. That's not actually the way it works in academe. It's who wants that next job above you. It's it's like when when the room empties and you're left, and that's it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I. I I never actually aspired to academic administration. Um, I, was, I was a successful researcher and teacher, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, and, uh, and then after about 10 or 12 years, I started in 1982 at Clarkson as an assistant professor, water and wastewater treatment. And then as things happen at universities, the department chair um, position became available, and people said, well, why don't you do it? And so that's the not really aspiring part of it. And, and, and looking around and seeing no one else that seemed to be interested, I, well, I, I'll give it a go. And uh, actually the same kind of thing happened in the step to the Dean of Engineering. And, uh, and, and then there was a full national search when I got to the presidential level. And 
It was a little strange. There were three finalists, and as the provost, I actually interviewed the other two finalists. We oh. couldn't quite work all that out, how that would work. Is that kind of like Dick Cheney when he became the vice president? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but as, in fact, I'll say that the, uh, after the process finished and there was a board meeting, I was actually, Karen and I were about to fly off to interview, a second interview for another president's position. And, um, you know, because it would be, after all of that, a little awkward to stay. <laughs> and, uh, but as fate turned out or something, uh, so I'm just finishing the 16th year as president. Awesome. Great. That's awesome. So, Tony, uh, we, we focus here on, on these uh, meetings pretty much on entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activities. So you're leading an institution that's 125 years old, that's in a very traditional market and industry. And, and so how do you keep things entrepreneurial and active and sort of, it's also an industry where probably in the last five or six years there's been tremendous changes and those changes will continue. So how do you, as a leader of an organization like that, how do you think about keeping the organization moving forward and vibrant? Well, and, and sometimes I'll say things, they sound trite or, or quick, or, but I'll say you do things. And you have to do those things with a purpose. You have to be committed, and you have to see opportunities, and then you do them. And after a while, people start to believe that if you talk about changes and doing things and you actually do it, then they're ready for that. And so it was actually uh, on campus to begin with. It, there were good ideas, and it was often, well, could we really do that? Probably the, the first example of that was our SPEED program, Student Projects for Engineering Experience and Design. I, I love competition. And that's actually part of, as I said, growing up. Australia likes to compete because, you know, otherwise no one would notice them. At least that was the, the, the sense in the country when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Who's going to take any notice of us way down here? And so it was that trying to compete, particularly internationally. And so I love competition. And, and, and so the Student Projects for Engineering Experience and Design within engineering, but anyone can join the teams, and we have about 15 or 16 of them, and, and, and the, the students really run those. We have one person that oversees and tries to bring kind of some, some organization to chaos when, when students are running everything, but that's the way it should be. And those teams compete, and so last year, uh, we have a design, aeronautical engineering, a design, build, and fly competition. It's a national competition. It's international. So think of the very best um, from Caltech to MIT. Any aeronautical engineering department, you have you, each year is a different design, a plane with about a 10-foot wingspan, and uh, and different payloads and maneuvers. I think they had to fly five times out the Cessna airfield in Wichita, Kansas, and we won out of 91 uh, teams. And, and <laughs> so I could see that introducing those kinds of opportunities to our students would, would allow them that opportunity to compete. It would benchmark what Clarkson is. It would give them a chance to really rise above the competition, put that on a resume, and away you go. And so I could see it. And one day we just did it. <laughs> and so it's seeing and then doing. Of course, there has to be valid. You have to be somewhat thoughtful. Uh, but, but that, and, and then since then, uh, off campus, suddenly I recognized that we could do things off campus to the advantage of the institution. 
and if you'll bear with me just for a little Please. extension of, <laughs> of the thought, is that I've, I'm, uh, you're all business people pretty much. And so imagine if you've got employees and they're saying, well, we want three and four and maybe 5% pay rises, and you've got your major income, it, let's put it in, in, in very local terms these days, a property income tax of 2%. Well, what happens if we cap tuition increases at 2%, which is between graduate and undergraduate activities, re tuition revenue is what drives the institution. You'll hear the term tuition-driven. And so 70 or 80, 70 percent plus or minus of our income, suddenly if we said, well, let's cap it at 2 percent, well, where are you going to get the extra, particularly when you've got energy costs and healthcare costs? And so for a long time now I've been preaching, uh, and I guess I listen to my own words, but I've been preaching we have to either derive more revenue streams or we have to become more productive. Now, more productive on a campus <laughs> is, well, you know, a this red is, cape to a bull. This podcast, don't forget. So. <laughs> well, but that, that's okay. And so, and so people are working hard, and, and, they've, and it's been a tradition in universities for 200-plus years, right? They are, they are the cradle of inspiration and new knowledge, and so it's hard to push back on pro or think of productivity, and so it had to be new revenue streams. And so expanding the revenue stream base was the only way that I could see that would, that would adjust the, 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 the formula that was sitting in front of me. And so the idea then of taking you know, some entrepreneurial thinking about doing things and moving it off campus so that we could grow revenue streams. That's a, a very fundamental picture of exactly what myself, our trustees, and, and, and administrators, and, and quite frankly, the staff and the students understood that that was a good way to go. It was beneficial in many ways that I can talk about, but that's the, the drive of when you say the entrepreneurial thinking. It had to happen. Okay, so now you have a campus up the road here, mm -hmm. and can you walk us through a little bit about the Union Graduate College decision and how is it working? And was that? And, how, and the other question I have for you is also just how do you assess? Like, there's probably times when maybe you, a decision didn't work out, and how do you know when to pull the plug on something as well? I'm interested in your thought process <laughs> on that. But I don't want to pull the plug on stack. <laughs> we are tremendously excited about what's happened here, and, and there's no plug pulling. <laughs> good, good. Let me add, by the way, that we actually had the same exercise in Beacon, New York, the Beacon Institute for Rivers and Estuaries, down in Beacon, and in fact, uh, we're just signing off on some contracts to expand the facilities. If you ever go down to Beacon, it's a public, it's a state park on Dennings Point, and we have a facility there, and uh, it's probably worth a couple of minutes to, to explain that, and then that shows the mindset that we had when we went to Union Graduate College. Right. So at Beacon, um, all the way back to Governor Pataki, he had put aside capital funding for essentially a research centre for rivers. Uh, and, and it was located at, at, at in, in eventually in, at, at Dennings Point in Beacon. And, of course, it's easier... If you look to the federal government, typically it's easier to get operating funds than capital funds. If you look at the state government, it's typically easier to get capital funds rather than operating funds. You know, I, it's a... Is that a fair... <laughs> and so... I'd forgotten about you there for a second, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time. <laughs> so... So 
the, the Governor Pataki had set aside capital funds, and, and they, were, they, they were pretty significant, but of course no operating funds. And so uh, they had developed a, a strong research component. One of our faculty members directed their research kind of in a joint appointment. They're unassociated. Uh, frankly, they were, they were in financial difficulty with no operating funds, very little. And so myself and the Dean of Business at the time met with uh, state officials. We said, look, we think if you give us a chance, we could go in and assume, subsume, merge the Beacon Institute into Clarkson and we could establish graduate programs and two birds with one stone, solve the problem for Beacon as an institute and, and add graduate programs in engineering and management into the Mid-Hudson region. It was a little underserved. And so, quite frankly, the state said, we're a little skeptical. They said, well, you get 12 months. So within 12 months, we actually had merged the Beacon Institute with about 12 employees, eight to 10 employees, can't remember, something like that. Uh, we had developed graduate programs, had revenue streams, and it's a great success. And we're building out that facility. We're now involved with K through 12 activities. Some of our undergraduates go down there in the summers. Our faculty are doing research in that, in that area. And of course, we have graduate programs. With graduate programs down there, graduate programs on the main campus in Potsdam, and uh, again, I'm, I, I've actually chaired the accreditation visits for major universities that happen about every 10 years. They're just switching it to eight years. And so I've, I've chaired the accreditation visit, which is about six or seven of your peers going and spending three days on campus. I looked at WPI, at Stevens and others chairing them, and their movement, those two in particular, into executive graduate programs was remarkable and phenomenal. And so then think about the additional revenue stream, and my wheels are starting to turn in my head. We were thinking, and, and Clarkson is very committed to its alumni, very committed to our corporate partners, many of which are here, the GEs, the IBMs, the Bechtels. We know that there was a demand, and yet it's a little difficult to run executive programs. You, you do need some face-to-face. And so we'd been thinking about all of that. We thought, well, our graduate programs are now in our schools. That doesn't make a lot of sense if you want to expand graduate activities. So rough numbers, we're at about, we, at that, we're about 3,200 uh, undergraduates on the main campus, and that's where our undergraduates are. And then uh, we had about maybe six or 700 graduate students, and we thought, well, if we can expand that. And so now we're... So we were ready, I mean, in a very strange way, so ready because our thinking had been we need a graduate school, graduate infrastructure, all of that, when I got an email <laughs> because a consultant had been with Union Graduate College, which is a total standalone, really had no direct connection with Union. As a standalone entity, consultants had said, you know, your future with about four or 500 full-time equivalent graduate students is not a rosy picture. And so they'd started to look for some partners uh, to potentially merge with. I would say within, when, 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 when Laura Schweitzer emailed me and a few other people, I'd say within five minutes I'd email back and said, we're very interested. <laughs> and and, and you're business people, most of you. And so the idea of a merge is a daunting task. We were so silly we had no clue about that. Uh, and, 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 and typically it takes time with due diligence and everything else. So for an academic, two academic institutions to merge within 12 months, literally within 12 months, must have set some kind of world speed records, all because they were interested. And I'll share with you in a very strange, serendipitous way, in their 
kind of uh, in, in, in their charter, they had literally that if, if they did something like that merge, they would have to give up the name union. And so there many, if there are failures of mergers in higher education these days across the country, I would say more than 50% are around whose name goes where. And so that was not an issue. We were ready. They were ready. It went to the heart of our disciplines, engineering and management, and so we did it. Unbeknownst to us was a Department of Education that focused in STEM education, Master of Arts in Teaching. That has become, you know, if, if, you, if you wanted a, you know, a, kind of a startup business within an industry, for us, the Master of Arts in Teaching is just a wonderful entree to give us a pipeline where we're now influencing the teachers that teach the, the kids that, that in, in, in K through 12 that we want. Right, STEM educated. So we're having we we understand what STEM education is about. Uh, we're helping to teach the teachers of STEM, uh, and and so that area was a terrific additional boom that we never thought of when, when we were really focused on in the merge. So it, it, it was I won't say it was serendipitous. It was a planned and understood strategy from both sides that happened to have just the right moment in time. Timing is everything, I guess. Bela, you were the interim president of Union Graduate College, right, during that merger time? That's right. So yep. president to president kind of thing going on there? <laughs> well, that was interim. Interim, interim that's right. So, um, Tony, I was going to switch gears here a little bit. So one of the things that has swept, you know, the country in the last 10 years is this whole online thing. I mean, it's hit retail, it's hit all sorts of businesses, and it really makes it, in some ways, advantageous for one or two huge giants to kind of control a large percentage of the marketplace. So online education is certainly something that's growing very rapidly and there's a pretty strong demand for it. So how do you think about entering that market, being in that market, and, and, and how do you differentiate yourself in education as, as the whole landscape is changing rapidly? Yeah, and, and that question along with, I could probably ask myself, four or five other really uh, critical, important far-reaching questions, but that, that one probably heads the, the pack. Uh, so for us, it, if I were trying to be an online provider uh, of just, uh, ju just course content and material, I would be terrified right now. Um, University of Southern New Hampshire, uh, uh, Arizona State, University of Massachusetts, uh, Purdue, they are so, um, George, they're, they're so into that activity. They have so much, so many resources, and they will probably nail the, the, uh, the just delivery of, of course content approach. And so there's just no way that we should, Clarkson, should think about competing uh, for that particular kind of uh, event. So we have to be high-quality, high touch, personal, all the characteristics that people have come to expect out of a Clarkson-type institution, we have, to, we have to translate that into the online environment. And so for us, one of our major successes, the, the Master of Science Engineering Management approach, is we, have, we, we limit it very strictly to a cohort of 20 to 25 students, just enough so that you can put everyone's face on a computer screen. We invite them to a to, to meet at the beginning of each course. They're typically a course 
one course at a time with the faculty member in a kind of retreat-like setting where you have uh, the cohort, they get to know each other, they interact, they begin the course uh, at that time with the, with the faculty member. It allows us to get faculty members of, of just spectacular quality. Uh, so, for example, the person that wrote the book on project management for the American Management Association is a Clarkson alumnus, and he teaches project management for us. Wow. Uh, so, so it allows you to go out and cherry-pick very specific people for those particular applications that the cohort of students is proud to know these people. They know that they can reference back to them after the course. They meet each other. The course lasts for eight or nine weeks. They come back together. So it's a very, it's not an online experience where, uh-oh, I've got to click in right now and do it. It's, it's, it's a, a, we have to learn how to make it a personal experience. All of our courses, as you know, we have a, a Quality Matters uh, program. We have three online, in, three instructors that focus on how to, how to get our faculty to teach the best kind of, in the, that kind of an environment. So for us, it's coming. We have to use it in the way that matches and suits the Clarkson image and brand, which is personal, uh, high quality, high value add. And so uh, if, if you wanted to go more to the mass numbers, uh, we couldn't survive. We're not going to survive. That's and, not ours. And you have a brand that you want to maintain. You want to maintain that level. Yep. All right. Um, I want to open it up. We have still many more questions, but we like this to be a conversation. So are there any questions for Dr. Collins? Is that, you, I don't know if anybody's intimidated by <laughs> Yes, please. Um, I'm a meteorologist here in town, and I don't own a consulting expert with this company. I graduated SUNY only 24 years ago, and the day after that, I was kind of adopted to the Clarkson University solar power car race team. Country with Dr. Eric Thatcher, and it was an amazing experience. And at that point, Clarkson was on the cutting edge of uh, electrical engineering. They built their own solar powered car, competed against 39 other universities. And in this day and age of solar and renewable, um, I'm wondering what is Clarkson University still on the cutting edge of doing research and then trying to you know, perfect that field? Absolutely, and, and so I, I would say that probably a third of our students are attracted to Clarkson because of our activity in the sustainable-slash-energy uh, sustainable world. And so a week ago, erected on our, uh, on, on our science building was a, a novel uh, wind uh, generator. Uh, it, it's actually a, a, a company that's owned and operated by a faculty member, it's a it's it's a ducted wind turbine. So, I mean, when you when you have great inventions, often they're simple. <laughs> and B, the second thing is everyone says, "Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> and so you think of a jet engine. You think the duct. The, the reason that you have a, a the, the shape of the in, intake to a jet engine is 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 it it creates much more efficiency with the airflow that's going in through the duct. Well, why not put the same kind of duct on a wind tower? And so if you want to go to Clarkson right now, you can see spinning. It looks actually like if you imagine a, a Mercedes, uh, the, the emblem for Mercedes, it looks just like that. In fact, one of our trustees wants to go to Mercedes and you know, get, get a donation because we're advertising <laughs> on our science roof. Yeah. And that, so that's full cycle. So students have worked on it, faculty member owns the company, uh, it's, it's going commercial. NYSERDA has actually put a lot of uh, funding into it. 
and 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 the the short answer is yes. Um, not solar cars so much anymore, uh, but but that was at the what you described was actually the beginning that gave me the idea to say, wait a minute, that's so successful. Why why should we have one team? Let's have fifteen teams. Of course. You know you, that means you've got to have faculty members advising, and, and you've got to be organised. You've got to have space, and so that's what I'm talking about. You've got to do it, <laughs> and then just see what happens. And so, but but that was the beginning. And so, thanks for helping out with us. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Any other questions? All right. Back, back there. Oh, back there. Sorry. I've waited a long time to ask this question. I've thought carefully about it, and Bella asked it instead. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, I, I think what attracted me to Clarkson, I gave you a little bit of background on Australia, is, is I see exactly the same characteristics in Clarkson as I grew up with. That is, the desire to compete and prove myself and show the world that we can, you know, we, we are down here. <laughs> same thing in Potsdam. It's, in this case, it's we're up here. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, that, that, that DNA goes through the campus and it does not take a lot to initiate change in activity so long as people can see that it fits the mould. And, and that, that what you described about uh, you know, taking the toolkit with you, that, and I said earlier, you know, we expanded, we have a, a person, Bob Davis, that runs the speed programs and he helps bring organisation to, to chaos. You can't overstep your mark and tell people you've got to do it this way. The best learning is by failing. We absolutely and so and so even you know we're so tempted sometimes when we have great success with these teams. Well, let's put all our eggs in this basket and put you know five technicians around them and we'll ensure our success for next year. That's the worst possible reaction. So it's it, it's it's allowing the students to succeed, fail, and, and and really feel the fruits of victory. That that that's and, and then that that becomes. Uh, addictive to the rest of the campus when they see that. Our women's hockey team, there's no doubt in my mind, <laughs> you know, when, when, it, when you can win the national championship three out of five years uh, and, and it just shows the campus yet again it's hard work and dedication and commitment. And so it's, it's explaining that and then, and then giving some time and attention and saying, let's do it, and people saying, okay. And the, the, the campus is small enough that you can actually have that influence. That's an advantage for us. And it goes back to, if we don't do that, everyone recognises, you know, it's, it, my, my, my wife's father used to say they live in Canada. <laughs> and so, so, <laughs> so, so, 
you know, with, with that in mind, the campus understands that it's terrific if we can show the world from where we are what's happening. And, and so it's not as hard as you may think. So you just mentioned the best learning comes from failing. I'm sorry. There was a question, but go ahead. Well, well, no, it's the congressman. If it was anybody else, I would have <laughs> kept on going. Congressman Tonko, go ahead. Uh, well, thank you. And President Collins, Tony, thank you so much for your leadership uh, because I've seen it up front uh, from the state perspective and now from the federal perspective, and I know the respect that, that you're held in uh, by your peers. So I thank you as an alum for that. Uh, this whole drain uh, of engineering uh, majors where we as a country need to produce more engineers to maintain that sharp competitive edge. Um, do you see something that we should be doing in the earlier settings that could encourage that population to grow? And uh, related to that, um, just I happen to believe that the global race on space drove a lot of interest in engineering uh, and it spiked some good activity. Do you see things like the Green Revolution and climate change to be doing the same? Yeah, this is going to sound like you're a question plant for me in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. So uh, actually this exact time, in one week's time, we're going to be at the Kennedy Space Center talking to about four or 500 high school students that have entered, the, they're the finalists in the Conrad Challenge. So. Uh, uh, Pete Conrad was the commander of Apollo 12, the second team to land on the moon. He passed away in a, a motorbike accident about 18 years ago in California. His wife, Nancy, formed the Conrad Foundation. Uh, they have... It, it, it's you, you, uh, it's an, an, an international competition. You write a business plan around something, a product, and essentially the, the top... 20 teams are selected, and that's about 400 people go to for, for what they call their summit to get hands-on help. And so I'm speaking down there. In fact, we, we now have a very strong partnership. We're the only major university partnered with the Conrad Foundation. And it, it's all about what we see as the next step in evolution. For us, we're calling it the Ignite program, where uh, you have to develop a mindset, a skill set, and experiences on campus Everyone knows that Clarkson people, including everyone in the room, is technically competent. We know that. So no one even questions that. I'd say the soft skills, the teamwork and, and, uh, and the communication skills, we've, all of us, all universities have put a lot of emphasis onto that in the last 10 to 15 years. And so that's now pretty much taken for granted. But do you have an inventive and creative uh, Mind, an entrepreneurial mindset, do you have that? And we're trying to create that in every student. So the best, quickest example I can give is we, we just finished our second President's Challenge. And I know the way I think into students' hearts. With graduate students, it's pizza. With undergraduates, it's money. And so, and so the, there are, there are, there are five, three categories this year, $5,000 first prize, uh, and, and it was... Create something for the Internet of Things. Mostly we aim it at our first-year students. So the Internet of Things had to be for your local, for your own community, for us Clarkson, regional community or, in, or national community. And so eventually it came down to about 24 teams that, that formed. There are rules. You can't 
you have to have at least two or three disciplines. So, so the teams have to be very mixed, and they, and they just arbitrarily go out and find them. Now, that was encouraged in all of our first-year courses, course in engineering, in the engineering and management program. And so we, we are intentionally using examples, and so maybe next year it could be one of those challenges that we're facing, climate change or, or, or sustainability. What, what can we do to, to change the world? What, what device or what could you produce? And, and so it's this... Now, we've got a lot of other things around it. And so, you know, the, the winning the entry ended up with 3,000 for winning their category and 2,000 for being uh, best of class. And we, it, it turns out that it's actually on campus. It's an, I want to quit my job and go... In this, there'll be phone calls, I guarantee, go out from this group this afternoon. So the idea was that with, with, in a, in a, we have a maker space and it's just, just been unveiled. And it's a large space, and it's got lots of different, you know, 3D printers and everything else. We can just go in and make things. And so we wanted to know what the util is. You know, have we got the right proportion of different pieces of equipment? Who's utilising it? So this was a camera, and it, it, and it has to be done anonymously because we can't intrude into people's privacy. But it knows where people are going in the room. So it just it takes a, it's a it's a, a, a um, it, it, through image technology. The output of it tells you at the end of the day where people went and what they did. Now think of Macy's and think of a, a you know merchandising. And so this you could just set your camera up. They've got all the, the software behind it. They can tell Macy's whether anyone's interested in that pair of brown shoes or, or whether everybody's going to look at the swimsuit. And, and so that came out of a group of first year students. So um, so so so. You can't just talk about it. You have to do it. And so we said we'll have a president's challenge. This is our second year. And, and how do you get involvement? You give them money. <laughs> it's that competition thing again. And so you're actually, you know, at a level down, you're telling them a lot about how they, you know, their behaviour and what they should do. But um, So we are working on what I would consider the third generation. You know, the first was technical competence. The second was soft skills. Now we're up to the third. How do we... How do we actually get every student on campus to have a, a mindset and a skill set that's entrepreneurial and, and inventive? Super. Any other questions? Yes, right here, Lamar. Did that student group uh, do a patent application? That, Jamie, where are you? <laughs> did they do a patent application? I'm sure we did an original before we did it. Good work, Did you know who Lamar is, by the way? Yes, okay. yes, yeah, Jimmy absolutely. We're, we're going to be partnering. Oh, yeah. awesome, awesome. Bringing people together. Tony Civitella. Uh, thank you again. Um, you know, we, we always talk about engineers. Being an engineer, of course, uh, there's a huge shortage of people like myself. But I always think engineers are not necessarily going to be there. They're not all inventors. They're not all going to be entrepreneurs. Sounds like maybe during the interview process, you guys have a process to say, this is not, not only is going to be a great candidate for the school, but could actually condense something, and it's going to be great for, for you know, for Clarkson. Do you guys actually have a process during uh, interview process to maybe cherry-pick some of these? Yeah, well, I mean, not, a couple, couple of comments. Um, it, is, it's a self-selecting process. That's what we've noticed now. And so uh, the students that come in, 
uh, want that environment. We talk about it a lot and we encourage them, and so it's become self-selecting. If, if that environment doesn't fit you, if you're intimidated by wanting to develop a mindset and a skill set you know, that, that's inventive and creative, we're not the right place for you. Um, and that doesn't mean we kind of turn them away. We, 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 we encourage them to think seriously about it, and maybe they do really want it. So, so yes, we are. Um, it's become self-selective. I actually think that anyone can benefit from what we're trying to do, so that any employee should be able to say, any, any employee for any of you should be able to walk up to you and say, there's a better way of doing it. I've been thinking about it. If, if, if we're going to be remain the number one economy in the world, we can't afford to have anybody not saying there's a better way of doing it. And so we're just so embedded into that that one more little bit is my... My favourite story probably is, so we had a high school student that was looking at us or, or a community college where he could actually go for free. And I said, gosh, what a, you know, you, you really, this, this, what's wrong with this picture? You need to come to Clarkson. So this is, nine, he graduated in 14, so it would have been 2010. And he, he and his father came to my office once and we, in this fall, came back in, in April and he said, well, I'm going to go probably to for free for two years, and I'll transfer to Clarkson. I said, this is a mistake. I said, we need you. I said, I, I, he, I said what's it going to take for you to come to Clarkson? He said, make me an offer. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, whatever you have to pay out of pocket after financial aid is applied, etc., you can get that for free, but we'll take 1.25% of your company, because he had a company that was part of the attraction, and... <clears throat> He, he, he was developing websites in a very spe specific area for municipalities and things. Uh, and, and so eventually we ended up with 10% of his company. He graduated, and about three years ago he turned up uh, and pre presented me with a check for about $18,000 to buy our 10% back to his company. Um, and so we, we are specifically trying to reach down. For us, we're reaching down into high schools. That, that, that award, by the way, is available still today, and, and we, we have um, people being attracted to it. So clearly it's part of your brand at this point. It's, it, and, and so that's what I'm saying. It's becoming self-selected, which I actually don't want, because I want everybody to, <laughs> to, to, be, to, to be thinking this way. As I said, you don't have to be you know, a, a, an entrepreneur starting a business. But I firmly believe that everybody, all of us, should be saying there's got to be a better way of doing it. If, if we lose, that's the only way we're going to, of course, that's the competition, right? <laughs> but, and that's, that's where life is fun. You know, I, I remiss to, to share this earlier. Our very first and so far our only intern that we've ever had at the Biz Lab was a Clarkson student. Tyler Rooney, who graduated a couple years ago. We were not looking to have an intern at mm -hmm. all. He had just done some Google searches. He approached me, and I was a little nervous of going to Tony to ask if we could have an intern program. And I go, but when I said, but he's from Clarkson. <laughs> it was either Clarkson or Sienna. You get a yes out of me. Yep. So anyway. Yep. So quick question, because we, we literally have one minute left. But quick question, is there something that you would love to go back and tell a younger Tony Collins about the world ahead? What would that be? Uh, this is going to sound strange. It'd be probably take even more risks and, and try things even earlier. You know, it, you, you get to be my old age, and, and, you, and, and that's, that's, of course, when you think you've, you've finally understood everything and, and, and how things work. And 
and quite frankly, you know, Paul was very gracious in his remarks, and you never quite understand what influence you have, um, and, and, and maybe until it's too late. And so maybe using that influence and that, that, that vision, if you have some, of, of acting even more quickly and even at a higher risk. And that's, so hello to all the trustees that are out there watching this live. Don't worry yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great takeaway. That's not, please give it up for Dr. Tony Collins. Can I just say one more? Okay. Thank you. I mean it very sincerely that Clarkson is committed to Schenectady in particular. We'll be down here, we, you know, Jamie with um, the Shipley Centre, our faculty, what we're doing. Uh, we, we fully expect to be a real partner in this community because there's so much opportunity. Uh, the, the environment is not unlike Potsdam. It's, it's a tough environment. We recognise that and we would love to make a very positive contribution. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank Thanks so much. Mike, I really enjoyed listening to President Collins describe the challenges faced by higher ed, which are, for the most part, long-standing organizations, steeped in tradition, and very conservative when it comes to change. He sure has a difficult challenge in getting such an organization to keep what is valuable and critical, and at the same time, change and adapt to a new digital-driven economy. Agreed. So, Bela, let's talk about this for a minute. What's your take on the future of higher education, and how should maybe specifically the U.S. system of higher education be evolving? So, Mike, you know, digitalization and globalization uh, is happening to all organizations and all businesses. Um, you know, it's, it's this digitalization and globalization of supply chain and deliveries and the workforce is what makes companies like Walmart and Home Depot. Uh, that's what um, enables them to grow large and to get all of this scale and these efficiencies of scale. And we've seen <clears throat> this happen in industry, and it started you know, in the 70s with the rise of Japan and their manufacturing capabilities, and it continues to this day. And so you have to ask yourself the question, how can this potentially impact higher ed? The higher ed business model has been fundamentally the same for over 200 years. And that is, um, they do basic research, and that's a big priority. They have graduate programs next, and then undergraduate, undergraduate teaching is sort of a third priority. And people will debate this, and I understand that it may be controversial to say that, but so be it. It's my opinion. And... What happens now is with this digitization and this ability to deliver quality programs outside of the physical classroom enables players to scale really rapidly. And we've seen that. We've seen that with uh, University of Phoenix, uh, Arizona, Southern New Hampshire, Purdue uh, recently purchased uh, Kaplan, which was the largest online provider. Uh, and now has launched what's called Purdue Global. Uh, you've seen edX, and you've seen these other organizations all. Everyone's trying to figure out how is this digitization, how is this ability to deliver education outside of the classroom, uh, and how can we take advantage of that? So the big players are getting into that business very rapidly. Why? Because I think it can possibly generate a significant amount of income. And number two 
it enables them to expand their brand very rapidly. Let me give you an example. So Georgia Tech, I think it was approximately three years ago, started a master's degree in computer science, in th an online degree. It cost $8,000 to get this master's degree from Georgia Tech in computer science, as opposed to $60,000 for the residential version. In three years, Georgia Tech graduated 8,000 people through this computer science degree, online computer science degree. That's remarkable given that they normally graduate only about 125 per year out of their residential program. So you can see this, this scale, this can really scale quickly. And now the challenges of course are, as the big ones get bigger, what are the smaller institutions gonna do? And just like in my hometown where I live, which is a small town, we used to have five hardware stores. And then Home Depot and Lowe's came to town. Now we have one hardware store left. And that one hardware store is thriving because in, in, it figured out how to compete against Lowe's and Home Depot. So I think this is a similar type of thing that universities are going to have to do. They're going to have to figure out how to, how to differentiate themselves and what is their niche going to be in the marketplace and why are students want to come to their institutions? Great answer, Bela. And I, I really do think that Tony's talking about trying to develop a unique business model that's difficult for rivals to imitate, essentially. So, um, you know, that's a big challenge, and we'll see what happens uh, in the coming years. But uh, I think we both hope, um, for the sake of our network, that uh, Tony is successful in his kind of attempt to reposition Clarkson uh, into a stance that will be successful uh, in dealing with digitization and globalization in the higher ed market. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing he talked about is this notion of, and I think Clarkson has always had this reputation, but further developing it, and that is this notion of a hands-on education experience. Mm -hmm. where you Use the word high touch. High right? touch, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So this, this notion of, you know, you're not just in the classroom. Uh, they're, they're, they're forcing students outside of the classroom to interact with businesses, to work on projects, to work on national competitions. Uh, and, and I think those are all wonderful, great experiences that greatly enhance the education process. And I think that was one of the things that Tony talked about as a significant differentiator uh, at Clarkson. And it's always been that way. And, and he's continuing to push that given, you know, new technology and, and how new technology can enable you to do those types of things more efficiently and more effectively. Yeah, how do you do experiential learning and collaborative learning and hands-on stuff in a digital environment? Is it is it still face-to-face? -face? Can you start to use robotics and three and virtual reality and things like this to create shared experiences? Um, to, to me, it's an exciting future. So let's narrow it a little bit, right? We're supposed to be talking about entrepreneurship. So my second question for you, is what's your take on higher education's ability to spur and support entrepreneurship and innovation? Or maybe put it another way, if you and I were to start with a clean sheet of paper, how would we best provide experiences for people interested in becoming more entrepreneurial, more innovative, or both? Well, I think there's two parts to that, Mike. <clears throat> one, one part, um, and, and thankfully, uh, academics uh, like yourself and others have done a lot of 
good fundamental research on what entrepreneurship is and what that process of entrepreneurship entails. So there's a good body of of knowledge now that exists where we can sort of quantify here is the process that one can go through and one can follow to generate entrepreneurial activities and ideas and concepts and products and services. So that's a necessary part of that educational process. And that's sort of the theoretical part. And I think a lot of schools are doing that. And, uh, you know, places like Babson have, have, have really uh, spurred those things on very well. And then the second piece is goes back to this experiential, hands-on, high-touch uh, element, which I think is necessary because many of the things where, where, where you're making something, you're producing something, whether it be a product or a service, there's an experiential element to that that is really critical. You can apply the theory, but many of these products or services, or as I like to say, very, each industry has subtleties about it. And you have to understand those subtleties. And the only way you understand them is by participating in that industry. So I think that's the other key element in this education. I, I know we can do it. I know places are doing it. I know we're doing it at Clarkson. And it's a challenge because it, it, it is sort of goes outside the boundaries of the traditional higher ed experience um, because you're, you're making students engage with the community and businesses and not only get the theory, but also get the experiential thing. You know, and I think back to the, <clears throat> the early, early 70s when I, when I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute to get my engineering degree, uh, there was very little things that went on outside the classroom. Uh, let me rephrase that. There were very few educational things that went on outside <laughs> the classroom. <laughs> and, and, and so, you, you know, you had to go look for projects to work on. It wasn't baked into the curriculum. Uh, those were like extracurricular things that if, if you had some motivation to do, you could, you could find something and you could, you could work with a faculty member on a project or a research project they had, but it wasn't part of the curriculum. And today I look at Clarkson and I look at other places, it's sort of baked into the curriculum. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a real key element of sort of this education process. Yeah. Uh, Same goes for internships and study abroad. Um, Co-ops, these things that are now really taken for granted as part of the experience, uh, are added. And it it takes infrastructure to manage all these things. And people talk about um, the cost of education going up. Well, yeah, but if you look at what comes with, and we can complain about fancy eating halls and gyms and all these other things, but um, but but certainly these experiences are ex- expensive to provide. But I. My again, my personal opinion is they add a ton of value, and that's I think where it's worth it. But that's where we have to head to, and how can we use technology to lower the costs, right? So if we say, hey, more cool stuff happens outside the classroom, that's actually good for keeping costs under control because guess what? The most expensive part is the buildings and the heat to heat the things in the winter and maintenance and right the staff that you need to run the physical infrastructure. So, you know, maybe that's a neat way to start to think about how to teach entrepreneurship and innovation um, more efficiently, um, keeping this rich experience, keeping the hands-on, keeping the interpersonal, but doing it outside the college space, right, or the typical college space as a way to improve the, the quality but also 
reduce the cost. Yeah, and that's where that's where technology comes in. You know, uh, twenty years ago, what you and I are doing right now was not possible. You could not be in Germany, and I could not be here, and we could not be recording this simultaneously while we can see each other on on camera. And, or certainly not with our budget. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's so the so the real question. One of the questions becomes, and I think about this in in the online courses I teach. You know, how can I enhance the richness of the experience? because we're not in a classroom. What are the things that normally happen in a classroom that I now need to try to figure out how to make happen when people are not all in the same room? And that technology keeps improving and we keep coming up with better and better ways of doing that. And so I'm very hopeful that that we're gonna get there. Uh, I still think today uh, we're not quite 100% there, but we're getting closer and closer every day. Yeah, I, I have a stream of research that looks at virtual reality as a training tool. And we're doing just that. It's starting to look at um, how you can use virtual reality where you put the goggles on and be sharing space and having some of the visual cues that you lack when you're literally looking at a laptop stream or your your phone or a tablet um, where you can actually manipulate things using gloves uh, together in a shared space and you can get the nonverbals and all these cool things. Um, That technology isn't ready for prime time. Some people get dizzy and nauseous. Uh, sometimes the technology fails, so it's not ready yet to to compete, essentially. Um, but we're starting to see places where we're using it as an adjunct to uh, to, to education. And I think we'll see the day, um, you know, really uh, in, in the next decade where um, some of these cool virtual reality or augmented reality tools are used to give people experiences that have very high fidelity to being in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully that'll that'll come, and I think it's gonna. It, you think education's changing fast now, boy? When when we get that to the point where it works well, oh mm-hmm. my gosh! I mean the 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 possibilities are really endless. Yeah, we have Aaron Draper, who the 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 woman who runs the um, the President's Challenge and the uh, Ignite program at Clarkson that Tony kind of referred to. Um, they've got a telepresence robot where you know you you can be in one place and you can roll through the space. Um, with your face on an iPad, essentially, and go around to different people and and talk to them, just like you were moving around um, a physical space and you were there live. Right. So, can you imagine a classroom where everybody you've got a bunch of these things and and people from all over the world are pretty close to being there? You know, it's cool. Yep, yep. I think it really is. Uh, it really is remarkable. So I'm I'm excited for the future. I mean, I'm scared for traditional universities. Um, you know, I moved over here to Germany in part because the taxpayers support the system rather than burdening families with big loans. And I know that might rile some people up, but this was a big driver of why I moved from from the U.S. to Germany. I I, I feel a lot more comfortable in this in this system. Um, but I'm really hopeful that innovation will help change the fundamental financial issues that uh, U.S. families are facing. Um, and fundamentally change when, where, how education is used to make it more useful um, and to make it more accessible uh, and to get back to, you know, when you and I were in school, education was the great leveler that everybody could afford it and it could be your leg up to climb essentially the income and social status, right? Where, you know, our our parents, our, our ability to do better than our parents did Right, it was hinged on our ability to get a public education at a reasonable cost. Right, a high quality public education. So hopefully this will all come full circle, and and we'll see the pendulum swing the other way. Um, 
like I said, I'm a big believer in that technology can do a lot of damage, but it can also do a ton of good. Um, and, and that's kind of what I look forward to in the next, whatever, 15 years I have left in my higher ed career. Right. Right. I, I, and I, certainly technology, digitization and globalization has helped deliver goods and services around the world at an extent that we've never seen before. And that's very, very accessible to lots of people. I mean, just, just look at cell phones and, and, you know, the number of people around the world who have cell phones and oftentimes they're in, in, in parts of the world where you would say, really, they have cell phones. And, and so Mm -hmm. I think that same technology, globalization, digitization, certainly has that same potential to do similar things in education. Yeah, it's just up to somebody to find the model that works, right? And there's probably multiple models that work, right? right? It's not just one. Absolutely. But that's that's the key. All right. All right, I think we should uh, keep an eye on the time here and uh, start to wrap this up. But to our listeners, we're really happy that you joined us today uh, in what we hope was uh, an interesting podcasting adventure for you this week. Uh, We hope you found it interesting and thought-provoking. We have, as usual, two small requests. First is if you have comments, questions about what we discuss, suggestions about topics or potential guests in the futures, please, by all means, get in touch with us. We love mail. Uh, Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you happen to like what we're doing, uh, use that subscribe button or the like key on your podcasting app. if you really want to be radical and consider writing us a quick review, we uh, would be thrilled uh, if you invested a few moments in that. And as always, if you know other people that might find us interesting, please share us with them. All right. So that's it for this week. Hey, thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. So signing off from Clarkson University. See you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. Thanks again. It's always great spending time with you. That's it for this week from over here in beautiful Münster, Germany. Have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.